Hi everyone, this is Vanessa Sinclair for Rendering Unconscious Podcast. Um, You may have noticed I've been taking a little bit of a break from conducting interviews for the podcast. Um, I did so many of them over the summer during pandemic um, and I had already decided to take the month of November off as a little break because I knew it would be a stressful month with the election and everything going on and I wanted to give myself some time off just to see what happened and see how to respond to what was going to happen because uh, things were very volatile of course in the United States and even though I'm in Sweden I'm from the U.S. and um, I'm very affected by everything going on there But then, unfortunately, my November was a lot worse than I ever could have imagined. Um, One of my best friends was murdered by her partner, um, ex-partner. Actually, she was in the process of leaving him, and he killed her. Um, He also killed himself, So uh, that happened on November 2nd, and uh, the remainder of the year has been pretty foggy for me um, as I've been processing this. But as the last episode of this year that has been 2020, um, I wanted to make an episode in, in dedication to Jessica and to raise awareness about domestic violence, intimate partner violence, and gun violence in the United States. Of course, we all know how horrific and what a massive scale of a problem gun violence in the United States is and has been for a long time now. Um, But... I think it's actually even a bigger problem than we all realize, as are many of these issues. And um, I've been trying to raise awareness around systemic violence and different forms of violence in the United States basically for the majority of my career um, since I, well, even in my postdoc um After I graduated in 2007, um, even during my postdoc, I worked with this wonderful psychoanalyst or psychoanalytic practitioner, psychoanalytic psychologist um, named Dr. Laura Williams. She was my supervisor, and, and I worked at Humboldt State University in the Student Counseling Center. And she was just a fantastic mentor to me and has been ever since, and she takes uh, rape culture and intimate partner violence and violence towards women and violence towards people of all genders so seriously, and um, survivors of rape and sexual abuse. Uh, We ran a group together for survivors of rape and sexual abuse, Um, and most of the participants in that group were um, survivors of incest, actually. 
So, so I wanted to go a little bit into the statistics um, for intimate partner violence as I've been researching them a lot uh, since Jessica's death. And um, at this point, the average is 24 people a minute are victims of sexual violence, physical violence, uh, rape by an intimate partner um, or ex-intimate partner in the U.S. 24 people per minute, which comes to around 12 million people a year. Um, And from what I've read, it's about three people a day are killed from an intimate partner or ex-intimate partner every day in the United States. Um, And that fact just horrified me all the more that this is happening so frequently. Three times a day, someone is killed. And of course, this doesn't even include psychological abuse, um, financial, economic abuse, um, this is only actual physical violence, which um, is probably a small part compared to the amount of psychological abuse going on. And when I started studying that, um, it said about half of people will experience this kind of gaslighting, psychological abuse from an intimate partner in their lifetime. So half of us will experience that. And um, as far as my experience goes, you know, most people I know have experienced that at some level in the United States. Um, And the statistics that I read from 2018 said since 2016 which we all know what happened in 2016. By 2018, domestic violence, intimate partner violence, had risen 42% in the United States. And, of course, since 2018, I'm sure that's gone up at least as much again because during this pandemic with people locked inside, spending so much time together at home, Domestic violence is increasing exponentially worldwide. Um, So I just wanted to raise awareness to these issues because when a murder-suicide happens to, to my friend in this case in Florida, and there's not even a mention of it on the local news, not even on the online news in the, by the local newspapers. There's no mention of it on the local news. When there's no mention of a murder-suicide happening, we live in a very sick society. When that's happening three times a day, and it's that common that it doesn't even raise a flag... We live in a very sick society, and we have a lot of work to do. 
And of course, I'm very glad that Biden and Harris were elected. And that's a great first step in uh, addressing things and changing things, hopefully, for the better. And one of the only thoughts of solace I've had in these past eight weeks um, has been that um, when Jessica was having her funeral service, it was on that Saturday, November 7th, and it occurred about an hour after the Biden-Harris victory was announced on that Saturday, and the whole world was erupting in dancing, singing, cheering. And I like to think that she could feel that positive energy, that energy. And as my husband Carl pointed out, everybody was celebrating that the collective has voted out the same type of toxic white male masculinity that took Jessica's life. That same kind of person has been in office and that same kind of person was voted out by the collective. And that was being celebrated while her funeral service was going on. So today, I wanted to do something that I've been wanting to do for a while because I feel like this is so relevant to our times. And that is read the correspondence between Albert Einstein and Sigmund Freud called Why War? Because it's so pertinent to our times. And even though, as I said, I'm very glad for the Biden-Harris victory, there is so much work to do. And I really don't want what happened in 2008 to happen again, where a lot of the population was relieved and happy that we had voted Obama in and therefore they felt like they did their job and their job was done because we need constant work on the ground and people need to stay involved and keep working hard um, to change the racial and systematic abuses and violence and also to address um, the global environmental crisis First and foremost, those are huge issues and they need constant work at this point. But before I read um, from Freud and Einstein, I wanted to read a little bit from these two books that I've helped to put out. Um, The first book is called On Psychoanalysis and Violence, Contemporary Lacanian Perspectives. And it's a book I edited with my friend and colleague, Manya Steinkohler. And um, after I finished my postdoc in California, I moved to New York and I worked in a um, hospital in Brooklyn 
where I witnessed horrendous systemic and racial violence and abuse. Um, and I felt really compelled to speak out about it. Um, and upon leaving the hospital in 2012, I started speaking out about it just a few weeks later at a conference in St. Louis organized by Todd Dean. Um, I'll link to his episode. I interviewed him for the podcast um, towards the beginning of the podcast, and he's really fantastic, and you should listen to him and follow his work. And he hosted the 10-year anniversary conference of Associated Psychoanalytic Work Groups um, in St. Louis. Darian Leader was the keynote. Stin Van Heul was there. Um, Paolo Mieli. It was a fantastic group. All the Irish Lacanians, uh, Ray O'Neill, Eve Watson, Patricia Gerovici was there. It was a really great conference. And that's when I gave my first talk um, speaking out about the systemic abuses in the American mental health care system. And then in 2015, Manya and I organized a conference uh, also dealing with violence in all its forms. Um, my main focus is on systemic and racial abuse. Um, but we welcomed violence in all its forms to be spoken about. And then some of the talks from that conference ended up in our book on psychoanalysis and violence, and others of the talks from that conference ended up in Rendering Unconscious, the book. And so I just wanted to read a little bit from the introduction from each of these so you can get an idea of what these books are about. Today, violence is everywhere. We are inundated by it, exhausted by it, bombarded by images and reports of it on a daily, even hourly basis in real time with minute-to-minute -minute updates via breaking news alerts on our iPhones, constant notifications and emails. From terrorism to the war on terrorism, from the exponential increase in mortality due to opioid overdose to the war on drugs, from mass shootings to the helplessness felt by the impossibility of enacting protective gun legislation, from school shootings by disgruntled, neglected teens to the failure of the mental health care system to address the often glaring warning signs. From constant coverage of the tweeter-in-chief who regularly overturns every principle of democratic and humane tenets of government only to replace them with a tyrannical whirlwind of inappropriate, impulsive, narcissistic, and highly aggressive rants to hostile contention regarding the reporting of the very facts of the news. Is it fake? Is that what really happened? The crisis in authority is just another way that we can't get rid of it, make it go away, contain it, or limit it, or limit our access to it. While the debate on the benefits and detriments of technology rages, our ability to concentrate and read anything longer than a headline is increasingly rare, as even professional researches also become reduced 
to Olympic-level scrollers skiing on the surface of information. The reduction of education to exam preparation, the addiction of children and teenagers to violent video games and social media, the diminishment of human beings to mere fodder for markets, the demonization of the other and the concomitant wall protecting us from them, quote-unquote, are just some of our daily social realities whose aggression we feel are horrified by and feel powerless to change. ADHD, autism, panic disorders, depression, anxiety, chronic pain, irritable bowel syndrome, restless leg syndrome, eczema, alcoholism, prescription drug addiction, and fibromyalgia are just some of the new names of our cultural malaise. And this book um, came out well in hardback November 2018 and the paperback January 2019. And it includes papers by Gerard Pommier, Jean-Jacques Moscovitz, Judith Butler, Juliette McCannell, Todd McGowan, Manya Steinkohler, Franz Kaltenbeck, Genevieve Morel, Carol Owens, Stephanie Swales, Guy Dana, Todd Dean, Patrick Landman, Patricia Garavici, Ali Reza Tahiri, Martin Ferre, and Vincent Lacord. And on topics such as terror in the unconscious, psychoanalysis in Argentina from 1976 to 1983, Susan Sturm, violence to aggressiveness, How to Measure What, Notes on Universals and Particulars, The Violence of Psychiatric Diagnosis, Violence and Repetition, Clinic of Video Games, The Tortured Child, Lone Wolf Terrorists, uh, The Sex and Their Violence, Eroticizing Biopower, uh, Political Philosophy and Freud, The Death Drive and Critical Faculty, Bodies and the Object Death, and Is the American Youth Rebelling Against America? And then in March or April of 2019, Rendering Unconscious, the book came out. And this book, like I mentioned, collects some of the papers from our conference on violence from 2015. I also approached a lot of different speakers who had worked with our group Unbehagen in New York, over the years, um, we started in Bahagen also in 2012 or 2011. And um, yeah, so I approached a lot of different psychoanalysts who had worked with us over the years. And then I also included some poetry, as I loved that Freud said that everywhere he went, a poet had always been there before him. Um, also helps lighten it up a little bit. <laughs> Um, so in the beginning, in the introduction of this book, I write, We the people are being gaslit. We have a much bigger problem than Trump. The American people are in an abusive relationship with their government. Trump is just the symptom. The symptom we can no longer ignore. As psychoanalysts, we understand that symptoms speak to us, and if we don't listen, they grow louder and louder until they smack us in the face and knock us to the ground. 
they demand to be heard. But the symptom itself is not the actual problem. It may be the thing that got our attention, but the real problem lies beneath the surface. It goes deeper and reaches further than most understand or care to realize. In this case, the problem is so extensive and pervasive that it's difficult to wrap one's head around. So fundamental to our society that many people are identified with aspects of it in some way. It is the very structure we rely on, the ground we stand upon in many ways. But this foundation is not solid. It is collapsing, and we are sinking into it like quicksand. Unfortunately, to those who have grown up within this system, in many ways it seems normal, quote-unquote, and natural. That's just the way it is. But there is nothing normal, natural, or healthy about this, and this is not the way it has to be. This system is abusive, It is insidious, calculated, and underlies every aspect of our government, infrastructure, education, healthcare, pharmacology, the production of food, the military, police force, immigration, judicial and prison systems. The very structures that are put in place to supposedly provide for and better the citizens are instead big businesses that manipulate, undermine, and abuse us. Corporations rule supreme. Our healthcare, educational system, food service industry, and prisons are all for-profit corporations. This is a fundamental problem in our society. Such basic rights and needs as healthcare, education, and protection of civilians should never be for profit. Prisons should never be for profit. These are the systems that should be provided by the governing body. Healthcare should be free from coercive incentives that gain big business and not the patient. Police should not be obligated to meet monthly and quarterly quotas. How sick is that? Who does this protect and serve? This kind of pressure only leads to more corruption. Everyone should be entitled to free education, including college, graduate school, and beyond. A better educated society leads to a better functioning society. If an individual is willing to put in the work it takes to embark upon higher education, their efforts and drive should be encouraged and supported. The collective will reap the benefits of the individual's hard work in the long run. That is how to build a better society. However, if we provide free education and health care for all, we lose the persuasive power that the promise of free college and health care has for coercing teenagers and young adults into joining the military. There is no way we will ever reach a sensible way of governance 
as long as corporations rule. At this point, their influence is so blatant that it is publicly known that corporations provide incalculably large sums of money to politicians of every level through lobbying. There is nothing new about this, but it has reached a previously unimagined peak. In the recent U.S. quote-unquote tax reform, certain congresspersons blatantly awaited the casting of the long-floor vote until their own desired monetary goals were reached. Our representatives are paid to vote in particular ways. This is no secret. It is occurring right out in the open for everyone to see, presented as if this is the way governing is done, as if this is business as usual. It is normalized. What happened to electing leaders to act in the best interests of the people they represent? How does that coincide with politicians voting the way corporations pay them to? Those governing are holding us hostage. We are pawns for leverage in their game. We are numbers. We are not seen as human. What happened to the power of the people? So with that being said, um, there's a lot of great papers in the Rendering Unconscious book. We still have a few. I think there's about 20 um, of the hardcover left through Trapar Publishing, and then they're all gone. Um, and they include a great paper by Allison Annunziata, uh, Love is War in the Digital Age, which addresses cyberstalking and stalking. Gabrielle Reisner wrote a piece called The Absent Feminine, which discusses Sabina Spielrein. Uh, there's great poetry by Candelabra um, and others, Katie Bohins, and Craig Slee wrote a great paper, Creeping Mortality, about what he calls Crip Cult, um, the in power inherent in disability. Um, there's a piece by Jill Gentile on hate speech, Gabriella Costardi on jouissance as a political category, an interview with Simon Critchley by Brad Evans, uh, which is called The Theater of Violence, Mark Strauss on violence, Chiara Botticci on the mass psychology of Trumpism, Manya Steinkohler on fake news, um, a piece by Tanya White Davis and Anu Cote on racial oppression and health and systemic uh, racial abuses and their impact very physically on people's health and mental health. Um, poetry again by Jason Half, Jerem Lin, Paul Stone. Um, a piece by Matthew Oyer on Bataille, Jessica Dadema on Black Swan, Olga Cox Cameron, A Terrible Beauty is Born uh, on Violence in Ireland, and a piece on Das Unbehagen by David Lichtenstein, um, poetry by Katie Ebbett, Marie Brown, Adele Soto, Andrew Dahl, and yeah, there's just so much great work in here. 
so yeah there's only about um 20 more copies at Trapar headquarters of Rendering Unconscious the book and they're all hardcover so um, I encourage you to get one if you haven't already before they're gone and help support the podcast and now I want to read to you Why War uh, this correspondence began in 1932 um It was in 1931 that the International Institute of Intellectual Cooperation was instructed uh, to arrange for an exchange of letters between prominent representative intellectuals on subjects calculated to serve the common interests of the League of Nations and of intellectual life and to publish these letters periodically. Um, So Albert Einstein was invited to participate in this, and he suggested that he write to Sigmund Freud. So first we have Einstein's letter to Freud, um, and both of these letters are taken from the UNESCO site. They're slightly abridged versions. If you want the full-length version, they can be found in uh, volume 22 of the Standard Edition. On July 30th, 1932, Einstein writes, Dear Professor Freud, is there any way of delivering mankind from the menace of war? It is common knowledge that, with the advance of modern science, this issue has come to mean a matter of life and death for civilization as we know it. Nevertheless, for all the zeal displayed, every attempt at its solution has ended in a lamentable breakdown. I believe, moreover, that those whose duty it is to tackle a problem professionally and practically are growing only too aware of their impotence to deal with it, and have now a very lively desire to learn the views of men who, absorbed in the pursuit of science, can see world problems in the perspective distance lens. As for me, the normal objective of my thought affords no insight into the dark places of human will and feeling. Thus, in the inquiry now proposed, I can do little more than seek to clarify the question at issue and, clearing the ground of the more obvious solutions, enable you to bring the light of your far-reaching knowledge of man's instinctive life to bear upon the problem. As one immune from national bias, I personally see a simple way of dealing with the superficial, i.e. administrative, aspect of the problem, the setting up by international consent of a legislative and judicial body to settle every conflict arising between nations. Each nation would undertake to abide by the orders issued by this legislative body, to invoke its decision in every dispute to accept its judgments unreservedly, and to carry out every measure the tribunal deems necessary for the execution of its decrees. But here at the outset I come up against a difficulty. A tribunal is a human institution, which, in proportion as the power at its disposal is inadequate to enforce its verdicts, is all the more prone to suffer these to be deflected by extrajudicial pressure. This is a fact with which we have to reckon. 
law, and might inevitably go hand in hand, and judicial decisions approach more nearly the ideal justice demanded by the community in whose name and interest these verdicts are pronounced, insofar as the community has effective power to compel respect of its judicial ideal. But at present we are far from possessing any supranational organization competent to render verdicts of incontestable authority and enforce absolute submission to the execution of its verdicts. Thus I am led to my first axiom, the quest of international security involves the unconditional surrender by every nation in a certain measure of its liberty of action, its sovereignty, that is to say, and it's clear beyond all doubt that no other road can lead to such security. The ill success, despite their obvious sincerity, of all the efforts made during the last decade to reach this goal leaves us no room to doubt that strong psychological factors are at work, which paralyze these efforts. Some of these factors are not far to seek. The craving for power which characterizes the governing class in every nation is hostile to any limitation of the national sovereignty. This political power hunger is wont to batten on the activities of another group whose aspirations are on purely mercenary economic lines. I have specifically in mind that small but determined group active in every nation composed of individuals who, indifferent to social considerations and restraints, regard warfare, the manufacture and sale of arms, simply as an occasion to advance their personal interests and enlarge their personal authority. But recognition of this obvious fact is merely the first step towards an appreciation of the actual state of affairs. Another question follows hard upon it. How is it possible for this small clique to bend the will of the majority who stand to lose and suffer by state of war to the service of their ambitions? An obvious answer to this question would seem to be that the minority, the ruling class at present, has the schools and press, usually the church as well, under its thumb. This enables it to organize and sway the emotions of the masses and make its tool of them. Yet even this answer does not provide a complete solution. Another question arises from it. How is it these devices succeed so well in rousing men to such wild enthusiasm, even to sacrifice their lives. Only one answer is possible, because man has within him a lust for hatred and destruction. In normal times, this passion exists in a latent state. It emerges only in unusual circumstances, but it is a comparatively easy task to call it into play and raise it to the power of a collective psychosis. Here lies, perhaps, the crux of all the complete complex of factors we are considering, an enigma that only the expert in the lore of human instincts can resolve. And so we come to our last question. Is it possible to control men's mental evolution so as to make him proof against the psychoses of hate and destructiveness? Here I am thinking by no means only of the so-called uncultured masses. Experience proves 
that it is rather the so-called intelligentsia that is most apt to yield to these disastrous collective suggestions, since the intellectual has no direct contact with life in the raw, but encounters it in its easiest synthetic form upon the printed page. To conclude, I have so far been speaking of only wars between nations, what are known as international conflicts, but I am well aware that the aggressive instinct operates under other forms and in other circumstances. I am thinking of civil wars, for instance, due in earlier days to religious zeal, but nowadays to social factors, or again, the persecution of racial minorities. But my insistence on what is the most typical, most cruel, and extravagant form of conflict between man and man was deliberate, for here we have the best occasion of discovering ways and means to render all armed conflicts impossible. I know that in your writings we may find answers, explicit or implied, to all the issues of this urgent and absorbing problem, but it would be of the greatest service to us all were you to present the problems of world peace in the light of your most recent discoveries, for such a presentation might well blaze the trail for new and fruitful modes of action. Yours very sincerely, Albert Einstein. And Freud's reply, September 1932, Vienna. Dear Professor Einstein, when I heard that you intended to invite me to an exchange of views on some subject that interested you and that seemed to deserve the interest of others besides yourself, I readily agreed. I expected you to choose a problem on the frontiers of what is knowable today, a problem to which each of us, a physicist and a psychologist, might have our own particular angle of approach and where we might come together from different directions upon the same ground. You have taken me by surprise, however, by posing the question of what can be done to protect mankind from the curse of war. I was scared at first by the thought of my, I had almost written our, incapacity for dealing with what seemed to be a practical problem, a concern for statesmen. But then I had realized that you had raised the question, not as a natural scientist and physicist, but as a philanthropist. You begin with the relations between might and right, and this is assuredly the proper starting point for our inquiry. But for the term might, I would substitute a tougher and more telling word, violence. In right and violence, we have today an obvious antinomy. It is easy to prove that one has evolved from the other. Conflicts of interest between man and man are resolved in principle by recourse to violence. It is the same in the animal kingdom from which man cannot claim exclusion. Nevertheless, men are also prone to conflicts of opinion, touching, on occasion, the loftiest peaks of abstract thought, which seem to call for settlement by quite another method. This refinement is, however, a late development. To start with, brute force was the factor which, in small communities, 
decided points of ownership and the question of which man's will was to prevail. Very soon physical force was implemented, then replaced by the use of various adjuncts. He proved the victor whose weapon was the better, or handled the most skillfully. Now for the first time with the coming of weapons, superior brains began to oust brute force, but the object of the conflict remained the same. One party was to be constrained by the injury done him or impairment of his strength to retract a claim or refusal. The end is most effectively gained when the opponent is definitively put out of action, in other words, is killed. This procedure has two advantages. The enemy cannot renew hostilities, and secondly, his fate defers, deters others from following his example. Moreover, the slaughter of a foe gratifies an instinctive craving, a point to which we shall revert hereafter. However, another consideration may be set off against this will to kill, the possibility of using an enemy for servile tasks if his spirit be broken and his life spared. Here violence finds an outlet not in slaughter but in subjugation. Hence springs the practice of giving quarter, but the victor having from now on to reckon with the craving for revenge that rankles in his victim forfeits to some extent his personal security. From violence to law. We know that in the course of evolution this state of things was modified. A path was traced that led away from violence to law. But what was this path? Surely it issued from a single verity, that the superiority of one strong man can be overcome by an alliance of many weaklings, that the union fait la force, brute force is overcome by union. The allied might of scattered units makes good its right against the isolated giant. Thus we may define right, i.e. law, as the might of a community, yet it too is nothing else than violence, quick to attack whatever individual stands in its path, and it employs the self-same methods, follows like ends, with but one difference. It is the communal, not individual violence, that has its way. But for the transition from crude violence to the reign of law, a certain psychological condition must first obtain. The union of the majority must be stable and enduring. If its sole raison d'etre be the discomfiture of some overwhelming individual, and after its downfall it be dissolved, it leads to nothing. Some other man, trusting to his superior power, will seek to reinstate the rule of violence, and the cycle will repeat itself unendingly. Thus the union of the people must be permanent and well organized. It must enact rules to meet the risk of possible revolts, must set up machinery ensuring that its rules, the laws, are observed, and that such acts of violence as the laws demand are duly carried out. 
This recognition of a community of interests engenders among the members of the group a sentiment of unity and fraternal solidarity which constitutes its real strength. Now the position is simple enough, so long as the community consists of a number of equipped individuals. The laws of such a group can determine to what extent the individual must forfeit his personal freedom. The right of using personal force as an instrument of violence to ensure the safety of the group. But such a combination is only theoretically possible. In practice, the situation is always complicated by the fact that, from the outset, the group includes elements of unequal power, men and women, elders and children, and very soon, as a result of war and conquest, victors and the vanquished, i.e. masters and slaves as well. From this time on, the common law takes notice of these inequalities of power. Laws are made by and for the rulers, giving the servile classes fewer rights. Thenceforward, there exist within the state two factors making for legal instability, but legislative evolution too. First, the attempts by members of the ruling class to set themselves above the law's restrictions, and secondly, the constant struggle of the ruled to extend their rights and to see each gain embodied in the code, replacing legal disabilities by equal laws for all. The second of these tendencies will be particularly marked when there takes place a positive mutation of the balance of power within the community, the frequent outcome of certain historical conditions. In such cases, the laws may gradually be adjusted to the changed conditions, or, as more usually ensues, the ruling class is loath to reckon with the new developments, the result being insurrections and civil wars, a period when law is in abeyance and force once more the arbiter, followed by a new regime of law. There is another factor of constitutional change which operates in a wholly pacifistic manner, the cultural evolution of the mass of community. This factor, however, is of a different order and can only be dealt with later. A supreme authority. Thus we see that, even within the group itself, the exercise of violence cannot be avoided when conflicting interests are at stake. But the common needs and habits of men who live in fellowship under the same sky favor a speedy issue of such conflicts, and, this being so, the possibilities of peaceful solutions make steady progress. Yet the most casual glance at world history will show an unending series of conflicts between one community and another, or a group of others, between large and smaller units, between cities, countries, races, tribes, and kingdoms, almost all of which were settled by the ordeal of war. Such wars, and either in pillage or in conquest and its fruits, the downfall of the loser. No single all-embracing judgment can be passed on these wars of aggrandizement. Some, like the war between the Mongols and the Turks, have led to unmitigated misery. Others, however, have furthered transition from violence to law, since they brought larger units into being. 
within whose limits a recourse to violence was banned and a new regime determined all disputes. Thus the Roman conquest brought that boon, the Pax Romana, to the Mediterranean lands. The French king's lust for aggrandizement created a new France, flourishing in peace and unity. Paradoxical as it sounds, we must admit that warfare might well serve to pave the way to that unbroken peace we so desire. For it's war that brings vast units into being, within whose frontiers all warfare is prescribed by a strong central power. In practice, however, this end is not attained, for as a rule the fruits of victory are but short-lived. The newly created unit falls asunder once again, generally because there can be no true cohesion between the parts that violence has welded. Hitherto, moreover, such conquests have only led to aggregations which, for all their magnitude, had limits, and disputes between these units could be resolved only by a recourse to arms. For humanity at large, the sole result of all these military enterprises was that, instead of frequent, not to say incessant, little wars, they had now to face great wars which, for all they came, left often were so much more destructive. Regarding the world of today, the same conclusion holds good, and you too have reached it, though by a shorter path. There is but one sure way of ending war, and that is the establishment, by common consent, of a central control which shall have the last word in every conflict of interests. For this, two things are needed. First, the creation of such a supreme court of judicature. Secondly, its investment with adequate executive force. Unless the second requirement be fulfilled, the first is unavailing. Obviously, the League of Nations, acting as a Supreme Court, fulfills this first condition. It does not fulfill the second, however. It has no force at its disposal and can only get, get it if the members of the new body, its constituent nations, furnish it. And as things are, this is a forlorn hope. Still, we should be taking a very short-sighted view of the League of Nations, were we to ignore the fact that here is an experiment the like of which has barely been attempted in the course of history, and never before on such a scale. It is an attempt to acquire the authority, in other words, coercive influence, which hitherto reposed exclusively on the possession of power, by calling into play certain idealistic attitudes of mind. We have seen that there are two factors of cohesion in a community, violent compulsions and ties of sentiment or identifications in technical parlance between the members of the group. If one of these factors becomes inoperative, the other may still suffice to hold the group together. Obviously, such notions as these can only be significant when they are the expression of a deeply rooted sense of unity, shared by all. It is all too clear that the nationalistic ideas paramount today in every country operate in quite a contrary direction. Thus, it would seem that any effort to replace brute force by the might of an ideal, is, under present conditions, doomed to fail. 
Our logic is at fault if we ignore the fact that right is founded on brute force and even today needs violence to maintain. Life force and death instinct. I now can comment on another of your statements. You are amazed that it is so easy to infect men with the warfare, war fever, and you surmise that men has in him an active instinct for hatred and destruction, amenable to such stimulations. I entirely agree with you. I believe in the existence of this instinct and have been recently at pains to study its manifestations. In this connection, may I set out a fragment of that knowledge of the instincts, which we psychoanalysts, after so many tentative essays and gropings in the dark, have compassed. We assume that human instincts are of two kinds, those that conserve and unify, which we call erotic, in the meaning Plato gives to Eros in his symposium, or else sexual, explicitly extending the popular connotations of sex. And secondly, the instincts to destroy and kill, which we assimilate as the aggressive or destructive instincts. These are, as you perceive, the well-known opposites, love and hate, transformed into theoretical entities. They are, perhaps, another aspect of those external polarities, attraction and repulsion, which fall within your province. But we must be chary of passing over hastily to the notions of good and evil. Each of these instincts is every whit as indispensable as its opposite and all the phenomena of life derive from their activity, whether they work in concert or in opposition. It seems that an instinct of either category can operate, but rarely in isolation. It is always blended, alloyed, as we say, with a certain dosage of its opposite, which modifies its aim, or even, in certain circumstances, is a prime condition of its attainment. Thus the instinct of self-preservation is certainly of an erotic nature, but to gain its ends this very instinct necessitates aggressive action. In the same way the love instinct, when directed to a specific object, calls for an admixture of the acquisitive instinct if it is to enter into effective possession of that object. It is the difficulty of isolating the two kinds of instinct in their manifestations that has so long prevented us from recognizing them. If you will travel with me a little further on this road, you will find that human affairs are complicated in yet another way. Only exceptionally does an action follow on the stimulus of a single instinct. As a rule, several motives of similar composition concur to bring about the act. When a nation is summoned to engage in war, a whole gamut of human motives will respond to this appeal. High and low motives, some openly avowed, others slurred over. The lust for aggression and destruction is certainly included. The innumerable cruelties of history and man's daily life confirm its prevalence and strength. 
The stimulation of these destructive impulses by appeals to idealism and the erotic instinct naturally facilitates their release. Musing on the atrocities recorded on history's page, we feel that the ideal motive has often served there as a camouflage for the lust of destruction. Sometimes, as with the cruelties of the Inquisition, it seems that, while the ideal motives occupied the foreground of consciousness, they drew their strength from the destructive instincts submerged in the unconscious. Both interpretations are feasible. I would like to dwell a little longer on this destructive instinct, which is seldom given the attention that its importance warrants. With the least of speculative efforts, we are led to conclude that this instinct functions in every living being, striving to work its ruin and reduce life to its primal state of inert matter. Indeed, it might well be called the death instinct, whereas the erotic instincts vouch for the struggle to live on. The death instinct becomes an impulse to destruction when, with the aid of certain organs, it directs its action outwards against external objects. The living being, that is to say, defends its own existence by destroying foreign bodies. But in one of its activities, the death instinct is operative within the living being, and we have sought to trace back a number of normal and pathological phenomena to this introversion of the destructive instinct. We have even committed the heresy of explaining the origin of human conscience by some such turning inward of the aggressive impulse. Obviously, when this internal tendency operates on too large a scale, it is no trivial matter, rather a positively morbid state of things. Whereas the diversion of the destructive impulse towards the external world must have beneficial effects. Here is then the biological justification for all those vile, pernicious propensities which we now are combating. We can but own that they are really more akin to nature than this our stand against them, which in fact remains to be accounted for. The upshot of these observations as bearing on the subject at hand is that there is no likelihood of our being able to suppress humanity's aggressive tendencies. In some happy corners of the earth, they say, where nature brings forth abundantly whatever man desires, there flourish races whose lives go gently by, unknowing of aggression or constraint. This I can hardly credit. I would like further details about these happy folk. From our mythology of the instincts, we may easily deduce a formula for an indirect method of eliminating war. If the propensity for war be due to the destructive instinct, we have always its counteragent, arrows, to our hand. All that produces ties of sentiment between man and man must serve us as war's antidote. These ties are of two kinds. First, such relations as those towards a beloved subject, void though they be of sexual intent. The psychoanalysts need feel no compunction in mentioning love in this connection. Religion uses the same language, love thy neighbor as thyself. A pious injunction, easy to announce but hard to carry out. The other bond of sentiment is by way of identification. 
all that brings out the significant resemblances between men calls into play this feeling of community identification whereon is founded in large measure the whole edifice of human society in your strictures on the abuse of authority i find another suggestion for an indirect attack on the war impulse that men are divided into leaders and the lead is that is but another manifestation of their inborn and irremediable inequality the second class constitutes the vast majority they need a high command to make decisions for them to which decisions they usually bow without demur in this context we would point out that men should be at greater pains than heretofore to form a superior class of independent thinkers unamenable to intimidation and fervent in the quest for truth whose function it would be to guide the masses dependent on their lead there is no need to point out how little the rule of politicians and the church's ban on liberty of thought encourage such a new creation the ideal conditions would obviously be found in a community where every man subordinated his instinctive life to the dictates of reason nothing less than this could bring about so thorough and so durable a union between man even if this involved the severance of mutual ties of sentiment but surely such a hope is utterly utopian as things are the other indirect methods of preventing war are certainly more feasible but entail no quick results they conjure up an ugly picture of mills that grind so slowly that before the flour is ready men are dead of hunger but why do we you and i and many another protest so vehemently against war instead of just accepting it as another of life's odious importunities for it seems a natural thing enough biologically sound and practically unavoidable i trust you will not be shocked by my raising such a question for the better conduct of an inquiry it may well be to don a mask of feigned aloofness to answer my query may run as follows because every man has a right over his own life and war destroys lives that were full of promise it forces the individual into situations that shame his manhood obliging him to murder fellow men against his will it ravages material amenities the fruits of human toil and much besides moreover wars as now conducted afford no scope for acts of heroism according to the old ideals and given the high perfection of modern arms war today would mean the sheer extermination of one of the combatants if not of both this is so true so obvious that we can but wonder why the conduct of war is not banned by general consent doubtless either of the points i have just made is open to debate it may be asked if the community in its turn cannot claim a right over the individual lives of its members moreover all forms of war cannot be indiscriminately condemned so long as there are nations and empires each prepared callously to exterminate its rival all alike must be equipped for war but we will not dwell on any of these problems they lie outside the debate to which you have invited me i pass on to another point 
the basis, as it strikes me, of our common hatred of war. It is this. We cannot do otherwise than hate it. Pacifists we are, since our organic nature wills us thus to be. Hence, it comes easy to us to find arguments that justify our standpoint. This point, however, calls for elucidation. Here is the way in which I see it. The cultural development of mankind, some I know prefer to call it civilization, has been in progress since antiquity. To this phenomenon we owe all its best in our composition, but also much that makes for human suffering. Its origins and causes are obscure. Its issue is uncertain, but some of its characteristics are easy to perceive. The psychic changes which accompany this process of cultural change are striking and not to be gainsaid. They consist in the progressive rejection of instinctive ends and the scaling down of instinctive reactions. Sensations which delighted our forefathers have become neutral or unbearable to us, and if our ethical and aesthetic ideals have undergone a change, the causes of this are ultimately organic. On the psychological side of the two most important phenomena of culture are, firstly, a strengthening of the intellect, which tends to master our instinctive life, and secondly, an introversion of the aggressive impulse, with all its consequence benefits and perils. Now war runs most emphatically counter to the psychic disposition imposed on us by the growth of culture. We are therefore bound to resent war, to find it truly intolerable. With pacifists like us, it is not merely an intellectual and effective repulsion, but a constitutional intolerance and idiosyncrasy in its most drastic form. And it would seem that the aesthetic ignominies of warfare play almost as large a part in this repugnant as war's atrocities. How long have we to wait before the rest of men turn pacifist? Impossible to say, and yet perhaps our hope that these two factors, man's cultural disposition and a well-founded dread of the form that future wars will take, may serve to put an end to war in the near future, is not chimerical. But by what ways or byways this will come about, we cannot guess. Meanwhile, we may rest on the assurance that whatever makes for cultural development is working also against war. I trust you will forgive me if what I have said has disappointed you, and I remain, with kindest regards, sincerely yours, Sigmund Freud. I hope that you all have appreciated these readings, and I'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard excerpts from On Psychoanalysis and Violence, Contemporary Lacanian Perspectives from Rutledge, Rendering Unconscious the Book, Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry from Chapart Books, 
and why war? Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. The track at the end of this episode is the first track I made for Jessica, and I've since created an entire album which came out on the 21st of December called The Pathways of the Heart, dedicated to Jessica Marshall, 1978 to 2020. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash v-a-n-e-s-s-a two three c-a-r-l. Your support is greatly appreciated. Color and texture in the darkness, all cats, and wiggling her butt in the entranceways. Crime against nature. Could when we, such are we the terrible of the expressions, I love the mythology himself. Where was the mother? The sharpness of it wisdom is the bone turns and upon the, the sage. Have abused wisdom. You should be annihilation now. Inside must you must also expect you to experience a dissolution her, your body night instead into an the Catholic Church. So which this would be is a particularly high. great would you die in a baby and had a I looked further down explains the development friends of his causes pieces of Miss flesh America you stone set down the pencil glazed one she said conveys a sensual state one of certainty as a keepsake all apparatus that allows go. me to reminisce of expressing anxiety and grief on the grass or the skulls and tops of parked cars. An action was turned into a conscious attempt that to disseminate this vision. But also to taste place to create like piping hot. When ultimately God was a bit of a failed agent of provocateur death. Ritual work, she requested that. There is the last of the night and the beginning of the red.